0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Politics Talk. Our regular listeners will have spotted that I am not Kieran, our usual host, and my guests today are not Cameron and Holly. That's because with Parliament in recess, we thought it was only fair to give them a break too. But don't worry, this edition will be full of political issues because we are going to focus and do a deep dive on house building today, and in particular, the Green Belt. Now, this has been in the news quite a lot of late uh, and it is quite a divisive issue and an important one uh, at that. And public opinions really matter on this. And the debate about house building up to now has often been couched in terms such as nimbusism, and also the builders versus the blockers. We so hear lots of politicians using those terms recently. I'm Trintu, Managing Director of Public Affairs in the UK, and today I am joined by my colleague Ben Marshall, who is our resident expert on all things housing, and I'm also joined today by James Francham from The Economist. Welcome both. Good to be here. Great. Now, James has written a wonderful article for The Economist on this topic, the Green Belt, which was published last week, uh, and it draws on extensive uh, data, including our own recent survey uh, on public opinions to the Green Belt. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the article. I myself have read it and I found it fascinating and learned so much from it. Uh, and we're really looking forward to diving deeper into, into it in terms of what it means for house building uh, and the Green Belt for the future. So, first of all, James, uh, welcome. And uh, just to find out a little bit uh, about the article itself, why did you decide to focus on the green belt? And perhaps you can explain uh, to our listeners a little bit about what is the green belt? Mm -hmm. Is it really as green as it sounds?
1: Sure, yeah, yeah. So the reason we wanted to do the article basically was because... There's a lot of talk in in political circles and and in policy circles about the green belt at the moment. So as you pointed out in your intro, there, the Conservatives have 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 been you know tweaking planning laws in their kind of 13 years in power. But um, at the moment, there's there's kind of provisional um, legislation going through which will basically um, uh, tighten up our restrictions on the green belt. And then, on the other hand, the Labour Party have said that Lisa Nandy, the, um, the housing secretary, shadow housing secretary, has said that, that she wants to lift the taboo on the green belt. So, so this kind of brings brings to the fore kind of what is the green belt? You know, what does it do? What doesn't it do? And you know, which side of of the fence do we want to sit on? So, um, so yeah, my article is very much focused on um, uh, a little town in Oxfordshire, just north of north of Oxford, called Kidlington where there's this Kidlington Gap. And there the Greenbelt kind of envelopes the whole of Oxford. And a bit of the Greenbelt has been released in order to build 4,400 homes. And as you can imagine, this is really quite contentious. So you kind of go, okay, what is the Greenbelt for? You know, where where did it come from? How do we get here in in 2023? And so if you go back to the long, long history of the Greenbelt, basically, you know, Elizabeth I wanted to put a cordon sanitaire uh, around around London, around the city of London, in order to to improve sanitation in Westminster, effectively. And um, that didn't really happen. But fast forward several hundred years, and in the 1940s, the London Plan, the Greater London Plan, um, suggested a, a, a greenbelt um, of about seven to nine miles wide around London. And then in the 1950s, that was expanded to as many as 35 miles wide. And then um, a planning designation then, um, sorry, a designation from the housing ministry suggested that, that all kind of local authorities should should introduce green belts in their local plans. So during the 1950s and 1960s, basically, every, every, well, 180 local authorities now have green belts. So the green belt today, um, and I should also add that it expanded, um, it doubled in the 1980s. So the green belt today is, is um, about 1.6 million hectares of land. Uh, which accounts for about twelve and a half percent of of the total land area in in England, and it's just not it's not just one green belt as well. London's metropolitan green belt, which really envelopes the city, um, accounts for for about thirty percent of of the total, one point six million hectares, and then the green belt, which is kind of across all of Greater Manchester. Merseyside, Cheshire, and Yorkshire is another 30%. But there are another 14 green belts on top of that. So they, they, Oxfordshire's, for example, Oxfordshire green belt is about um, one sixth of the county. So, and these green belts, it's not a central government designation. They're all done on kind of a local authority basis. um, And um, they... In the normal order of things, uh local authorities make plans to to, to um to uh, to find sites for housing development. And in in and if they are enveloped by Greenbelt, they can't they can't build on that land okay. unless there are kind of um extenuating circumstances and you know there's there's they can't find additional sites anywhere else. What the Conservatives want to do is is strengthen those protections and to say there's going to be no onus on local authorities to release greenbelt land. So what what kidlington have done in my example the cherwell local authority what they've done under the provisional rules going through um from the tories um, will mean that actually that land is won't be released in in the future effectively or will be it will be less likely to be released
0: and how many green belts are there in total?
1: There are sixteen okay. green belts in total. So when so, we talk
0: about the green belt, I only, you know, until I read your article, I just assumed there was one green belt, but there are actually six, sixteen green belts.
1: Yeah. Okay. And then I, I can also add that what is the green belt and what does it consist of? So in terms of the headline stats, so um, much of the green belt is agricultural land. So you can imagine in, in London, this kind of belt kind of envelopes the whole, the whole of the rings the whole of the of of the city kind of around the m25 and out to the home county so so about two-thirds of the of the total 1.6 million hectares is is agricultural land about 20 percent is is forestry and open water and about seven percent is is available for recreation some of it is already built on prior to his to prior to its designation as green belt, um, so it's kind of infill around rural villages and and and, and so on. So, but the green belt is kind of you know the green belt is very much a misnomer insofar as that it's not especially verdant or green. Um, there are other designations which, and the, the key point I'd say also is that it's people think it's a, a measure to protect the countryside. Um, but the you know, the, the head of planning in nineteen fifty nine said explicitly this is not a measure to protect the countryside. There are other measures to protect the countryside, which are national parks, yeah. areas areas of outstanding natural beauty and sites of special scientific interest. And those collectively account for twenty-six percent of, of total land area. So that's how the countryside is protected. Yeah. The purpose of the Greenbelt is solely to prevent urban sprawl. So that's the policy goal. And it and it's It does a pretty, you know, it does a good job at doing that. It prevents urban sprawl by restricting the size of London, restricting the size of Oxford and so on. It does this around many different cities and 180 local authorities. But at the same time, because these these rings are effectively set in aspic, that it means that we don't we can't find enough sites for house building. So the, the, those that I'm coming not on now to, you know, the problems associated with this policy goal, but that that is...
0: We've got to talk a little bit more about that in a minute as to why we can't, you know, why do we need to, to go anywhere near the green belt and why can't we, we we build somewhere somewhere else? But first of all, Ben, just kind of touch a little bit about the, the survey. So we did a survey, which obviously James drew on uh, as one of his piece of evidence um tell us a little bit about the survey and what does the public does the public get what the green belt is are we having a discussion where the public is informed um about what it is and what the issues are
2: so for quite some years now we've been polling the public on their attitudes towards housing and house building um and um we have also been running a series of what we call polls of perceptions pieces to really precisely do what I suppose what what you were alluding to, which is to find out what people do know, and to compare perception with reality. Um, and I think that the uh, the current discourse about the green belt, in particular, is it was a great opportunity to really find out what people do know about the green belt and, and what they think it, about it. We did do a survey for CPRE a few years ago, which found that um, uh, the majority uh, of, of, of the English public. Um, um, didn't feel they knew much about the greenbelt, but they felt a degree of um, warmth towards it. Um, in fact, a quarter of people have said they'd never heard of it. Um, the survey we did this time for in partnership with The Economist was all about really understanding attitudes to house building. So we covered nimbyism, for example. Um, the conditions, that, and there's a lot of conditionality that people are attached to supporting or uh, indeed opposing um, house building what they know about the extent of development in England um, currently um, and also what they think about the green belt vis-a-vis um, meeting housing needs. So getting people to trade off yeah. protection of something against um, the, um, the recognised need for Britain to build more homes. And actually that is something that came very loud and clear through the survey. Again, is that people recognise the housing crisis and a good number of them make the link between Um, housing supply and affordability. And of course, during the cost of living crisis, we've become ever more um, uh, sensitive as a population to the affordability crisis that makes up the the housing crisis. So we did the survey in July um, and James and uh, um, covered it beautifully, but um, if I could use uh, a, a phrase that he used in his article um, to sort of sum it up, it is that in, in general, voters love the green belt, but it is based, it's a kind of blind love in many ways. It's based on quite a shallow understanding of what it is and who can blame people because as James has already alluded to, it's a fairly niche topic within a topic that isn't something that people think about an awful lot. Um And the headline we used was that 6 in 10 people in England favour retaining the current green belt or belts, Mm -hmm. um, even if it restricts the country's ability to meet housing needs, whereas 2 in 10 state the opposite. Even amongst those instinctively pro-building, there is this strong attachment to what um, Paul Smith of Land Securities called one of the most successful pieces of branding in, in British history. So it's tremendously challenging for any politician or anyone really to have a as a, as a journalist wrote about recently a grown-up conversation about something that is held dear to to people
0: do we find that do people change their views once they actually know that you know the green belt is is some of it is not it's is not all that green and uh the proportion of it is actually open for the kind of like recreational use and uh uh the lovely countryside is actually quite modest do we find that people change their perceptions then
2: this is what we don't know an awful lot of yet because um the deliberative component you, you describe is more challenging in a, in a survey context and I actually think this this topic is absolutely ripe for yeah. for doing a more deliberative component in allowing the public into this conversation It's, you know, you can't fact check a feeling. We know that people's base case, so people wildly overestimate the extent of England that is currently developed. Um, On average, the mean guess is 47%, when in fact the reality is 9%. So people have a pretty warped view of the current state of our green and pleasant land and the extent to which it's built on. When we tell people... Um, that actually the green belt constitutes 13%. My working hypothesis is that people do the maths and on average work out that there's 40% up for grabs. That probably sensitizes them to the the threat, the loss aversion that could be caused by additional building. Um, Particularly in a context where people, we know from other research, are not particularly enamored with what they see in terms of uh, solutions to the housing crisis. In other words, unaffordable flats that are being built that, 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 that don't work for anyone. Um, and we know from the survey for The Economist that the difference in levels of support between building on Greenfield and Brownfield is considerable. So 25% of the population support building on Greenfield, uh, new local homes, um, whereas it's 69% for Brownfield. And even those who are instinctively opposed to building are, are, are majority supportive of building on, on Brownfield, which just shows the power of the terms brown and green in any narrative vis-a-vis housing and house building.
0: No, I completely agree. Perhaps that can be our next project, James, to do a deliberative event and get people to trade off between uh, where they uh, where they want to build. So brilliant! Let's kind of move on now. Um, now we know what all now all know what green belts uh, and brown belts are. Um, your article, James, can you? T- I mean, when I read it, it it packed a lot of issues in there there's lots and lots uh, of details could you just kind of like summarize for us what the kind of the the three to four key takeaways from your from your from your article
1: yeah okay so what i'd say is what's wrong with the green belt so this kind of you know urban sprawl is the aim of it it does a good job at doing that broadly speaking however there's this misunderstanding with the green belt as we we said that uh Greenbelt is not that green, and therefore, um, so in in the kind of mind's eye of the country, what it you know what it does um, is 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 not what they think it is. You know what what it exists for, and the second thing so and then the second thing is what are the effects of the greenbelt? What are the kind of secondary effects of the green belt So the the so one. One aspect of the green belt is is in London, so London has um, what the government calls an objectively assessed housing need for for um, of eighty five thousand homes a year, and the current um, five year averages it, it it builds about thirty five thousand a year. So there's a there's a big gap in in house building, and the reason for that is because there aren't enough brownfield sites, um, and and there isn't enough land elsewhere, so the, it's so constrained by its green belt. So that that's the first problem. Um, and then the second problem is is pretty much elsewhere. If you look at, look at the statistics um, on objectively assessed housing need for other local authorities, so those local authorities that have um, green belts, they are able to meet their their housing need goals, although there's some questions around whether how, how decent those goals are because it's all kind of endogenous. But setting that aside, um, so they're unable to meet sorry, they're able to meet their their housing need. But what what happens is that and Kidlington and Oxfordshire is a good example of this. So Oxford's really enveloped by by its greenbelt. And therefore what you've seen in Churwell um, local authority is that that housing will jump over the will leap the green belt and it will be built in other places so in in oxfordshire in recent years that's been in in Bister in didcart and abingdon principally so if you look at the the statistics um overall what we know is that for example for the kind of 180 or so rural, local authorities that have green belts um about 40% of the housing has been built It's about 125,000 units or so over the past few years has been built on greenfield land outside of the green belt okay. so um so as a measure to protect the countryside which it is not it does not protect the it's the, spreading countryside. the countryside yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. so the and these housing developments tend to be less dense um, by their nature there's, there's less agglomeration and so on so so that's problematic so you see that as you know particularly as a place like um oxford which has a very t- very tight boundaries to this to the city um, it's constrained both by the green belt also by floodplains because you know the Thames and the isis run through it um, and so therefore where does the housing go it goes, it goes over the green belt and goes in Bis to Ab- Abingdon, and Didcot, and therefore it's, you know, it's not really a, it's not, it's not a decent urban center. You know, the, the, the idea of having this arc of innovation between Oxford and Cambridge is really difficult to execute if you're, um, you're enclosed by a green belt and as you know, Cambridge has the same problem. So, so yeah, so the, so the headline basically is, yeah, um, green belt, not that green, London really constrains housing. And elsewhere, um, you basically get less agglomeration because of this leapfrog effect. So those are the, the those are the three principal problems.
0: Okay. So I mean, would you would one solution be in London, could you not build up more?
1: Yeah, you can you can build up, but what I would say and everyone says this point, and Michael Gove for all for for example once you know so the government talk about gentle density so you can build up but you can't do it at a scale or a pace which is sufficient to meet house building targets so doing gentle gentle density means five to seven stories which we don't have enough of um and so i just recently crunched numbers for example so gave will talk about the upper west side in manhattan um dwellings per hectare there 250 um dwellings per hectare the most dense borough in London uh which be Hackney or Islington is about 100 dwellings per hectare so it's a long way from the density of of the Upper West side but where do you found the find the brownfield sites or if you're a housing developer for example small Paul Smith of strategic land group will say how do you develop these sites how you know you have to buy out individual householders on a street and then kind of knock them down or extend them and stuff and doing that and doing that with all the problems that you have with planning on a local authority but within local authorities is really difficult to do because you don't have any certainty about what you can do what you can develop the time scale the risk that you have to take on the planning risk associated with it there are, to be fair within the um leveling up and regeneration bill which is going through kind of the final readings in parliament and it's likely to be to get um, signed uh, in in the fall, so that will have some design codes, which will kind of give some guidance, yeah. um, which will basically force local authorities to give guidance and design codes to to and how to do gentle density. But that said, you still have all the problems with like finding the sites and scaling that. And so, getting from thirty-five thousand to eighty-five thousand homes, which is yeah. kind of what the assess need is in London every year, with debt with increased density alone, is really difficult. And one thing I'd add is that, that Gove has this plan, for example, which is a good, good illustration of this, of this kind of Docklands 2.0 in the original hesseltinean vision of, of the Docklands. And so that's 65,000 units or thereabouts, I guess, you know, these are kind of back of Leo envelope sketches of master plans or who knows over various different sites of kind of like places around Docklands um, airport and stuff. But sixty five thousand units over a realistic kind of ten year time frame is less than ten percent of what you need. So, like, you know, Old Oak Common, another site, but it's like twenty five thousand units. You know, so you really need you need scale, and to do scale, you need kind of greenfield. You need to release greenbelt, basically, effectively. So that is that is the problem. So density, yes, but it's really it's one part of the solution we're all for density but it so it's you know, a little it's bit of density a bit thing. of
0: a little green, green and, belt and probably a little bit of a greenfield as well
1: indeed well the point i would say is that you will get higher densities as well with releasing green belt because that green belt will be closer to urban cores yeah. which would have higher higher land values which would support putting in greater density yeah. than releasing greenfield in like yeah. you know the middle of nowhere bista where you don't, it doesn't, the land values, A, don't support that density, and B, people don't want it when they're there either. So they will, people will happily have density in a, in a kind of more urban environment, which is the green belt.
0: Yeah, so you would need to build a lot, lot more if you're going to go on a green field, and then the demand probably is not there anyway, and then you don't get the economies of scale from actually
1: yeah indeed yeah exactly so so the dwellings per hectare in greenfield in a place where like Bicester would be probably like 25 dwellings per hectare if you built in oxford city in kind of north oxford the that density is about 50 dwellings or something 40 50 dwellings per hectare
2: i, th- I think this is one of the challenges as well with with housing is that um it's very hard to do everything with one silver bullet, one, yeah. one policy, and, and you know many people have been calling for many years for a more strategic approach to housing. Um, so for example, just to sort of um, bring public opinion to the table again, um, we know that levels of support for home building, for new house building, increases if properties are in character with the local surroundings. We know that um, support increases if, um, and bear in mind that this is important for politicians to make the case, and all politics is local, all housing is local at the end of the day. Um, But support also increases if infrastructure is in place. In fact, when we polled um, the public at the last general election and we showed blind um, people, different um, uh, manifesto pledges from the parties on housing, the most popular one, just about they're all pretty popular because there was a sentiment amongst the public with just do something please somebody do something um um was some um, infrastructure first was the conservative party policy which and you can see why the government is trying to concentrate There's where the infrastructure is already there building that gentle density exploiting the existing infrastructure but the numbers just don't add up as james has said so you ca- you can't just do that so i think the point is is uh, and this is where this is this is an issue that is really ripe for political leadership, hence all the challenges. Where do you lead opinion? Do you follow it? Do you try and do both? You can't build a lot of millions of houses without, you know, um, make an omelette without breaking an egg. You can't, you, you, something's got to give. And that's one of the challenges that the academic Ben Ansell has said. One of the challenges is um, in the prosperity trap, as he calls it, as a chapter in his book about why politics fails. Is short term versus long term yeah. short term expediency? Don't rock the boat. Keep the locals hap- happy. Um, versus what is a national imperative? Um, we cannot compete economically without the you know without our cities growing and thriving and the workforce to you know within striking distance. I don't know what the what the stat is. This is the number of Met police officers that have to travel into London. You know you you need locally rooted. Um, populations, so, so something
0: yeah, has to get. Yeah, even if we, that's you know, we've also got the environmental impact uh, yep. as well of people travelling in and out of cities. Um, so the, I know you spoke to quite a few people when you when you did this piece. Did you find any consensus at all as to kind of like what's the what's the what's the solutions uh, that will that will build consensus that people are happy with that would actually move us along a little bit on this? On this journey, because you got you got the sixty percent of the public who are saying actually we want to keep the green belt, even though we know that there's a housing need, and we know that actually public opinions on this matter does influence politicians' behaviours. So, what's the kind of like what's your
1: so deal? yeah? As I said, so the reporting was from Kidlington where they want to they're building with well, their plans to build, and they're going through planning permission now of four thousand four hundred homes on. On uh, about 250 he- hectares of the green belt, so there'll still be a green, a green gap, as it were, between Kidlington and, and North Oxford, but not much of one. And there's there's a little bit of tr- uh, there's a there's a wedge of land just as you get off of Oxford Parkway called um, called the Triangle, and it's kind of sandwiched between a bunch of trunk, trunk roads. And there they want to put the new Oxford United Stadium because they're going to be homeless soon. They're in the Kassam Stadium. They want to put a 16,000 seater uh football stadium there and this is quite controversial as it happens because uh there's going to be no car parking uh they're hoping that all the football fans will will arrive by train um or you know use the use the park and rides and so on um and obviously football fans have been football fans some of them love it they want to they want a new stadium um, and, and then a lot of locals hate it. So, and then at the same time, just up the road, there's this, um, plans to put, um, a new innovation district with Oxford university. Um, and the local councillor Ian Middleton, who's a, a green councillor, who was elected a couple of years ago and, um, um. Uh, in opposition to all the housing plans and stuff and his his house actually overlooks the site and he took me around and stuff and yeah his his house is is going to be um you know surrounded by other houses in about five years from now rather than surrounded by kind of a wheat field and stuff so for him obviously there's a cost and the problem as Ben you know was saying is you all development comes with costs and benefits and those costs accrue to the people that are there and those benefits accrue to the people that haven't tend tend to be the people that haven't yet moved in to the area and so if you're a local politician like Ian Middleton is he's going to go well the people who you know elect me basically don't want this so I'm going to say I don't want this it's an easy position to take you know you're not you're not represented by the people that aren't yet that aren't yet there so that's part of the problem so you need you need basically to stretch the kind of the 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 politics of it all in terms of the horizons and kind of go let's imagine a world where where you know this is 25 years from now what does this what does oxford north oxford and kidlington look like and is this more desirable than quite frankly like the crappy road and the crap you know the kind of crappy kind of area that we have already and actually if you have a vision for that and i guess that's what master plans are for is to kind of go look at this this is what you know done well we can create then then hopefully a lot of people would go actually yeah i can see the sense in this i think so you know in respect of like labor's position of wanting to lift the taboo on the green belt it's if you look at our polling it's actually quite a, a brave position to take but um, having said that, there are lots of people that realize we do need to build more homes and some of those have to be on the greenbelt and the kind of numbers that we're talking about are not that massive. You know, the greenbelt's 1.6 million hectares. Um, you'd only need to release 10% of that land to build 5 million homes, 5 million homes, because half of our homes already come from brownfield land. Anyway, yeah. 5, 5 million homes would see you for basically like 15 20 years 25 years of house building so you know you kind of be sorted for that um if you want to if you want to yeah. build so it just needs someone with the kind of a, both the strategic politicians in whitehall with the strategic vision of kind of going like and a brave decision yeah. uh, but also local politicians to also acknowledge that you know they're not just Thinking about this kind of two, three, four-year political cycle that they're in, they th- they need to think big, and so connecting those two is really is really the challenge, I think.
2: I think that was evident in the survey as well when we asked people um, to essentially um, attribute blame. That's too strong a word, but to 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 identify the extent to which different actors were responsible for yeah. the chronic undersupply of homes in Britain, and. Um, restrictive planning and the difficulty of finding um, sites was salient, is that a good degree of people, a majority considered that to have a great deal or a fair amount of responsibility for undersupply. But a, beyond that was local opposition and also um, political interest. And, you know, the short-termism that, that James described is 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 a difficulty. At the same time, um, you know, I think that... There's an awful lot, and it's interesting—an awful lot of opportunity to tell a positive story. I mean, about housing and house building and the regeneration, uplifting of areas, um, which politicians, if they're being imaginative, would would grasp. And someone say Labour are trying to do that now. Um, you know, with being a bit bolder, um, and because you know we've we talked about this before, Trin is that the lovely metaphor with the high vis jacket and the hard hat that that you know that that politicians love but there are different ways of doing it i think that's the thing about the more strategic look at, at the way we do planning the way we do this um you know quite often to be fair to local communities um housing and james talks about this one of the one of the kind of um unforeseen consequences of the, the of the of the green belt is um is that housing is plonked in the middle of nowhere with insufficient infrastructure with limited engagement politicians haven't done the kind of um, the engagement with with communities, partly because perhaps they, they they don't want to, they're a bit scared of being associated with it. So there's some interesting ideas about offsetting you talked about offsetting, whereby pockets of the the green belt could be could be available for building, on the proviso with an equal amount of land protected elsewhere where it's suitable to do so. There's ski- ideas about. Um, at generating benefits, some would say bribes for local communities um I think um national grid are looking at that at the moment. I might be wrong, um but the idea that they get cheap electricity if they if the community sanctions or approves um the building of new um energy generating infrastructure in their local area so th- th- there needs to be a different way of doing it, but the only way we can ever get anywhere close to that is um having a conversation about it, and the challenge with the conversation about the green belt, as we've all alluded to. Um, and, and housing like is it's very emotive. Now we can't ignore that, but we've just got to take the edge off it a little bit, use evidence, understand the nuance, engagement to really cut through that.
0: I mean, do you think Labour will be uh,
2: brave enough to actually go the full, the full hog? I I think it's interesting, when we, when we consider housing as an issue, um, I think in recent years, it is clearly it's gained more prominence and salience. But for an issue to really cut through, people need, need, voters need to discern a difference between the political parties and they've got to be confident that actually the government of the day will be able to do something about that problem. And that's where housing has fallen down a little bit. It has been described as the wobbly pillar of the welfare state. Um, Is It's not like the NHS and to some extent the immigration where the government can pull a lever, it's a market, supply and demand, can you control that, all that sort of thing. But today, I think the parties have tried to nu- weaponise and then neutralise. So we had this sort of arms race at the last election. We'll build a million, no, we'll build a million as well. We'll do a bit more than a million, so will we. And I think there's a degree of fatalism scepticism that that people will follow through. So for, for Labour, being more bold in their language and their rhetoric, um, I think it suits them probably to talk about the Conservatives' record. It always suits them to talk about the Conservatives' record, but also to say, we will do things differently. Um, but the, the challenge will be actually delivering on that. Um, you know, particularly as a lot of swing voters need persuading that their local area does need new homes. All politics is local. All housing is local. So how will that work out in 650 constituencies?
0: I mean, I do. I mean, with the, the, the general election just round the corner, and you've got the um, the, the cost of living and the, the interest rates, and young people getting a lot more vocal now. I mean, what do you, what do you expect? We're going to be able to. See, we're going to. We'll, we'll see in the coming months. So we've got the party conferences coming in the autumn. This issue doesn't look like it's going to go away. No, no, for sure. Um, no. So what? I think. I think we kind of know what you'd like to see, but what do you, what do you think in practice is going to? You know, what, what can we expect in the coming, the coming months?
1: So with respect to the Tories' position, I imagine much. You know a lot of doubling down on the on the kind of rhetoric of not con you know not concreting over the countryside the a leveling up and regeneration bill will be signed in with that they'll be they'll be fine they'll finalize the kind of provisional changes to the national planning policy framework which will then seek to strengthen the green belt there'll be t- discussions about the three hundred thousand target and and whether it can be met and there's there are lots of concerns about the the changes that I just mentioned in M, to the MPPF um, restricting the amount of house building, even in light of the current economic environment with interest rates and inflation and so on. So, so I think there's going to be quite a bit of pressure on Gove and Sunak in order to demonstrate that they can increase house building under the kind of provisional legislation that they have at the moment. And I think contrasted with that, you will see kind of a bit more flesh on the bones of of where labour's, what labour want to do, uh, with respect both to the green belt, but also with respect to to what the planning environment um, look like. Looks like. Um, and for example, discussions about you know whether three hundred thousand, for example, homes a year, which is the the the, the Tory target in England um last year we built 130,000. so this is net housing completions whether that has indeed meaning and indeed where those homes go and whether um you should put um uh they should be mandatory for example for local authorities so so sunaka said that they're not mandatory they're just uh, aspirations, the aspirations aren't they yeah, yeah the beginning of mm-hmm. a conversation exactly but uh, you know a lot of the a lot of the sp- people i spoke to was you know Firstly, questioning whether three hundred thousand, where that comes from, and indeed, kind of comes from, you know, thin air, effectively. But it's a it's a decent number if we could get there. But secondly, what the kind of mix of tenure should be as well. So that comes at kind of social housing. So I think a number put out by um, a parliamentary committee was kind of one hundred twenty thousand or something social homes a year. So you may see, I think. Labour kind of putting flesh on the bones of actually what, you know, what targets would look like, how you would get there, um and and whether they would um stick with the the kind of reasonably liberal position that that the Tories have taken with with planning changes. So how
0: about you, Ben? Knowing what we know about public opinion. What do you reckon's gonna happen next?
1: Oh gosh.
2: Um Housing is sort of having its place in the sun at the moment. Uh, it's our oh, miserable summer. Um, is that it's 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 getting a lot of focus. Um, I have been around long enough to know that sometimes that waxes and wanes. Um, and um, you know, I think the cost of living crisis has made the housing crisis bigger and uglier um, for many many different reasons. Um, but it does feel like this is just a new phase. Is that there is that discernible difference between the parties and their approach? Um, will we see that fleshed out, as, as, as James has said? Um, I would, the, the optimist in me would like to think that this is the beginnings of a, a proper, as Martina Lees in the, in the Times called it, a proper grown up conversation about the use of land um, in this country um, and why the, the, the countryside is far from concreted over. Um, and that we will use evidence, we will use engagement at the election and during the election and maybe even after the election to really develop a kind of strategic, holistic approach to the, to, to housing, everything from local housing allowance through to empties, through to um, uh, new builds, etc. So lots to work through. Um, and you know to to, to emphasize the point and this will not be an overnight thing um the green belt has been with us since what 1955 i think it is mm-hmm. um you know and you can't fact check a feeling there's an awful lot of concerted work to be done to to have that conversation and change the the kind of um, mood music around housing which is pretty negative and and sort of syd- cynical amongst the public more pessimistically um maybe this will just be more weaponizing more neutralizing um, and that you know politicians will pander to perceptions and misperceptions and, 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 and play it as they think it will suit them. But hopefully, you know, um, I, I hope well. I hope that doesn't happen. Um, but we'll 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 wait and see.
0: That's it. Let's wait and see what happens in the autumn and whether we'll get to see more flesh on Labour's policies to do with housing. Well, thank you, everyone. That's all we've got time for today. Uh, Thank you both to my brilliant guests for joining us uh, uh, on this episode of Politics Talk. And I thoroughly recommend that you have a read of James's article. Like I said, I learnt Uh, a tremendous amount from reading it. And uh, so check our website, we'll have a link to the article and also to the survey with lots and lots of data uh, from the study that, uh, that Ben mentioned. So thank you very much and keep in touch.